Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 12. We are closing that chapter, reading verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words this morning, we confess in advance our need for help. We so often long for revenge and taking matters into our own hands. And so give us grace today to hear a different word from you of a different way and help us by your spirit to live in that way. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's a theme nearly as old as time. Someone wrongs us and we respond to right that wrong. It's the theme of some of the greatest works of Western literature. You could read the Iliad by Homer, and you would find it there. Everyone exacting revenge, even the gods exacting revenge on one another. You find it in Shakespeare's Hamlet, a play that is enacted in the head of the main character for the most part, but revenge being the subject. Perhaps the most beautiful and Elegant of all of those sources is Alexander Dumais and the Count of Monte Cristo, an epic story of revenge. And they all explore this idea of how exactly do we respond to evil. It's also a more ancient theme than that. We find it picked up in the scriptures in any number of places, but especially in the Psalms, as we just read from Psalm 57. We find it in David's life as he walked through experiences with adversaries and enemies, some who counted themselves publicly as his friends but betrayed him behind his back. And why all of this? Why all of this emphasis in Western literature? And why do we find it in the Bible? And why do we find it in all manners of world literature? It's because of this, because there's a sad reality that we live in a broken and we live in a fractured world and none of us escape the predicament of being wronged by another person. In particular, it's difficult to escape being wronged by an adversary. That is one who does not act in your best interest. And so the question for each of us is what do we then do with that? When we are wronged and someone is acting against our best interest, how do we respond? And does our faith place any claim upon that response? In Romans 12, 
Paul speaks to this issue, directing us with the simple advice in verse 21 that we are to overcome evil with good. This is demanding, and we won't act like it's otherwise. It's a rigorous claim that puts demands upon us that take us to the very edge of our ability in engaging with God. And so we're going to explore this in five parts this morning. If you tire of three-part sermons, this is for you. And so what does it look like to overcome evil with good? First step, verse 14, we bless our adversary. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Paul says it plainly, directly, baldly to us because it's in our nature to respond by cursing. And he's not talking about four-letter words necessarily here, but he's talking about the response particularly in front of God, that when wronged, our immediate reflex is to return that wrong, even invoking God's name to return that wrong. And so one of the primary places for us, when we're dealing with a real adversary, with someone acting against our own interest, is that we have to deal with that person in front of God. That that relationship, that vertical relationship of how we relate to that enemy and adversary in the presence of God sets the tone for the rest of the relationship. And so rather than calling on God to curse them, to devour them with the sword, we're instructed to ask God to bless them. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to pray for their material prosperity or their increased social prominence, but it does mean that we're to pray for their spiritual blessing. That is, we're to pray for their repentance. We're to pray for their turn, for their self-awareness to come to see themselves clearly and that they would come to know God, that they would be reconciled to him through Jesus. And so we don't curse, we bless. It's also important to clarify what this is not. Many years ago, as a young pastor experiencing some difficulties in the church, I met with one mentor, and he said, well, Chuck, now that you've had some distance from the event, do you see that this just goes on everywhere? and that you just have to get over it. And I remember receiving that advice and just crumpling because it felt like my concerns, all the things that I had seen, all the things that I experienced, the real injustice and overlooking of things that I had witnessed, that all those things didn't really matter. That's what my friend was essentially telling me, that I just needed to get over it. And friends, this is not what the Bible is saying. When we're told to bless and not curse, it doesn't mean that we act like evil isn't evil. It doesn't mean that we act like wrong isn't wrong. It doesn't mean we just forget about the past and cover it up. That's perhaps the most wicked thing we can do to some people who truly suffered at the hands of others. But rather, what we're asked to do is to bless 
And Jesus provides the model for us. In Luke 23, as he's crucified, as he's taunted, the one innocent man in the history of the world who's reviled and made fun of and then executed. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He seeks the spiritual blessing of those who opposed him. And so we're called to walk in that same manner. Second, after blessing our adversary, we also don't seek to even the score. If you move into verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Our nature tells us to take an eye for an eye, a pound of flesh for a pound of flesh, or perhaps two pounds of flesh for that pound of flesh that's taken. Calvin quips that all of us think we're due a little more justice than actually is the case. And that is how it works for us, that we want to exact revenge. We want to even the score in our own estimation. Some would celebrate with us for doing so, but we're asked to use a different standard. That is those who've been bought by Jesus his unjust sufferings in which he cancels out the weight of human sin, in which he reverses all the evil of the world, in which he reconciles us to God, that Jesus asks us to use a different standard. And he says this, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so in our meditations and in our conversations when we're wronged, We're asked not to plot revenge and what that could look like and how emotionally satisfying that would be. But rather, we're asked to plot to do what is seen by all to be honorable, what no one would have a problem with. And so, friends, in those moments when we've been wronged and we've been treated unjustly and someone is not acting in our own interest, we don't seek to even the score and meditate upon that. And let that be the constant rumination of our soul, but rather what we plot, what we turn over in our hearts, what we set our meditations and our minds on is what is an honorable course. What would this person and this person think of this action? How would this be esteemed? What is an honorable course in the midst of very trying circumstances? And so we don't seek to even the score, we seek an honorable path ahead. Third part of this, as far as possible, we're to seek peace. If you look in verse 18, you see Paul's direct advice. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, this doesn't mean that we submit ourselves to dangerous people or to abusive situations. That is not Paul's advice here. But what he says is, insofar as it depends on you, for your part, you seek to be peaceable with everyone, even your adversaries, is the meaning here. And what this recognizes, though, is that that peace is not always possible. And friends, when we try to broker that peace and it doesn't happen, then the burden is not upon you. The burden is for you to be peaceable insofar as it depends on you. 
But there are moments and situations, and Paul is recognizing that in the qualification he provides, that it is not always possible. That the other party, the adversary, the enemy, the one who's not seeking after your good, they may not be terribly interested. They may have no concern. They may actually take the opportunity of trying to settle the peace and use it further against you. But just on your part, you do what you can. And at a certain point, maturity recognizes that the peaceable solution is to step back and to simply retreat into the cause of blessing and not cursing, to praying for the person and for their spiritual benefit. But this is what we have to do, is seek the peace insofar as it depends on us. Now, the fourth thing that we are to do in the midst of those circumstances, and perhaps most importantly, is that we are to entrust our case to God. If you follow in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, as we talk about these different steps that we take when we experience injustice, when things are not right, even when we have to watch adversaries promote themselves and have success in the world, and sometimes at our own expense, when we feel that level of injustice, perhaps you're already thinking it, but Chuck, that injustice just can't stand. I can't simply let it continue. It can't just go on and on and on. And I want you to note something very important about the Christian response to injustice. Our response to injustice, even while we are asking for God to bless them, even while we're seeking to be peaceable and to pursue the peace with that person, that we are never simply allowing justice to st- to injustice to stand. What we are doing is refusing to exercise vengeance. We are refusing to exercise our own sense of justice. And that refusal is built on one very solid foundation. And that solid foundation is that God himself is the only one who can establish true justice. That what we do when we do not take up vengeance and when we do not exercise revenge with those who have wronged us is we're actually exercising our faith. And we're acknowledging that God is the one who brings the living and the dead into judgment. And it is God alone who is qualified to right all the wrongs. That it's God alone who knows the standards someone uses, their motives, and also he knows their goals. And he can sort it all out. And actually what Paul is telling us here is that exercising justice is above our pay grade. That we're not qualified for it. That we could never bring about perfect justice. That we're always going to want more than just an equal share in response. And that we are relieved of the burden of trying to exercise this justice. Because God will perfectly do it. And so we trust that God will bring everything that was done in private 
everything that wasn't acknowledged, every wrong that never came into the light of day, that God one day will bring it to the light. That all will be known. And the one that who is just, the one who acts without any impropriety, without any partiality, without any inequity within him, whose courtroom is not marred by any bribery, that this God is the one who will exercise justice on our behalf. And so what we do is we submit ourselves to God. Psalm 17 provides a wonderful and beautiful example of this for us, that in entrusting ourselves to God, we bring ourselves honestly to him. And we don't hide the experience that we're having. We name the trouble. We put the conflict in front of him. We bring our adversary into God's presence. And then the psalmist searches himself. And we ask God to search us, to reveal any wrong way, any broken thing. Because we acknowledge that we too are involved in those real series of events and sometimes we can have engaged in wrong. And then secondly, towards the end of the psalm, what happens is that the injustice is put into God's hands. That is, rather than turning it over and over and plotting revenge, the psalmist brings the entire situation before God and then leaves it with God. It is his. It is his to exercise justice. Why is that so important? Why is the tradition of Christian spirituality filled with this? Because when we fail to entrust our case to God, there is only one thing that happens. It eats us alive from within. That when we hold the case to ourselves, even if we're not acting on it, our adversary will begin to shape and to define our lives. Our anger will eat us up. Our frustration, our wondering why things are the way they are. And sadly, the very people that we despise, we become. And so God in instructing us to entrust our case to him is freeing us from the burdens that we will then carry when we try to hold it within and when we want to manage it on our own. And so hear him. And in all of your injustices and the wrongs that have been done, rather than keeping the score on that, bring it honestly to God. Share your pains with him. Allow the psalms and the prayers of the church to free you to do so. He willingly and eagerly listens to that. And search yourself and turn it into his hands. This is where Paul is leading us here. Trusting that God is the one who exercises justice. And the final piece of our response is we shame our adversary with grace. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
The burning coals metaphor is a difficult one, but we normally understand it as the pain that can be brought about that brings someone to shame and to contrition. And so it promotes repentance. And so rather than responding in kind to the one who injures us, we respond with blessing. And friends, in the middle of our broken world and all the brokenness that inhabits us, this is the best revenge that can be exacted. It's the revenge of grace. It is to allow the evil of another person to grow something beautiful in you. It's recognizing that in all the world's injustice, in all those times of chaos where it feels like the world is so out of control, that in that moment as Jesus of Nazareth goes under the evil and judgment of the world and the disciples are despondent and they are exhausted and despairing, that it is in that moment that God actually redeems and rescues the world. And so what we do as we then choose to shame our adversary with grace is that we entrust ourselves to God and we entrust that in going down this path in the same way that God brought such good from Jesus' demise and unjust sufferings, that God will bring good in us as well. It's a profound act of faith, suspending ourselves in the justice of God, suspending ourselves in the truth of, of the promise of God, that he will right every wrong, that he's the one who makes sad things untrue. And so what do we need in order to not be a vengeful and vindictive person? You need a robust Christian faith, deeply grounded in the injustice of the cross, deeply grounded in the justice that God brought forward in canceling out sins, deeply grounded in the future hope that Jesus' death and resurrection secures for us, and that the world will be free from all of that injustice and all of that pain and all of that sorrow. And so to not exercise revenge it requires trust and confidence in God, that God does what God says. And so in the middle of all of our own sorrows and pains, which are large in a room this big, we look to the cross and we see that God, in bringing about good out of that evil that was inflicted upon Jesus, sets the way as Jesus blesses his adversaries, he entrusted himself to God. He even brought his pains to God, crying out, why have you forsaken me? But yet also confident that God would not. He shamed his adversaries with grace. And so we look to him to fill us with all grace, to walk in that way. And so let's ask him this morning for his help. Father, as we listen to your word this morning and as you counsel us, we recognize all of our weaknesses, all of our brokenness, all the ways that we desire to repay evil with evil. And we ask for you to help us 
that we be people who overcome evil with good. May it be the meditations of our hearts and minds to do what is honorable in the sight of all and not to repay. Free us through the cross of your son and give us the confidence that you are the one who exercises perfect justice and fill our hearts with hope for that day. Teach us what it means to honestly come to you, to present ourselves, to scrutinize ourselves, and also to entrust our case to you. Grant us that depth, integrity, and spirituality and work within us. God, we also bring our many other burdens and concerns this morning. Concerns for our world and praying for the mission of your church and asking God that you would bring blessing to all the tribes and tongues of the nations that the peoples would praise you, that all the peoples would praise you, that the nations would be glad and shout and sing for joy. And so, God, we pray for your blessing on our mission partner, Aldo Mondin, serving at, U- at the University of South Florida with RUF. And we're thankful for the good reports and early stages of AJ's ministry there in Tampa and ask, God, that you bless his family as they give themselves sacrificially to the students at USF continue to build their ministry, grant leadership teams to mature, and may the gospel go out, and may it be joyous news as people hear of the forgiveness of sins, of the resurrection to new life, of the great hope of a future. And so bless AJ in his work. We also pray for Gethsemane Garden Christian Center, not Bundabugio. The ends of the world. (laughs) And God, we're grateful for our brothers and sisters there. As they ministered to the orphans who are gathered there in the school, we continue to ask that you give grace to Nerea as she leads this ministry in Naphtali's absence. God, provide every one of their needs and send out these children to all the ends of the earth that they would proclaim the good news of Jesus. Form them deeply provide for all their wounds and their burdens. Father, we entrust to you all those who are in authority. They are in authority by your decree. And so we gladly pray for them today, asking for you to lead them in wisdom and into paths of righteousness, that they would always be cognizant and aware that they are accountable to you for all their exercise of power. And so we pray for blessing on our president, Joe Biden. We pray for blessing on both houses of Congress. Pray for blessing on the justices of our Supreme Court, for our governor, Ron DeSantis, for our House of Representatives, for our mayor and local city council. God, give them wisdom to know how to navigate their moment and exercise their power well and lead to blessing and the flourishing of human life in our society. This morning, we are also mindful of those who are sick and those who are suffering in our community. And we ask God that you would draw near and give them comfort, that you remind them of your great promises that are stronger even than death. Bring healing where it pleases you, and may the power of resurrection renew life. And God, so we pray for our sister Barb Day, 
We pray for little Louis Spoznik, for Sue Forsyth, for Elizabeth Garnett, for Gar Garganius, for Hector and Viona Harima, for Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, Jules Smith, and Ken Van Til as he recovers from pneumonia. Bless each of your saints, God. Grant them your peace. Fill them with your grace. And Father, we also present our children to you, and we ask that you will bless them, that as they grow up in this house that's been set apart by your grace, that they would delight in the knowledge of you, that they would hold fast to you all of their days, that they would delight in learning about you and your world, knowing Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, and that their hopes and that their view of the world be shaped by the truths of Scripture. Bless each of these little ones, God, that they would grow strong, growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with you and all people. Watch over them. Be their shepherd as you've promised. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.